Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, once again, we find ourselves in a target-rich environment with a lot of intriguing stuff going on around us and gigantic question marks hanging over the head of the American people as uh, here we are a week and some change down the road and still major questions remain in the presidential election. Where would you like to begin today? Well, they certainly do remain, and I guess this just demonstrates again that You know, as we said earlier, a lot of people think constitutional law, well, that's just a subject of the 1700s, and yes, it may be interesting for historical reasons, but we are seeing constitutional dramas playing out daily before us, and probably at no time in recent history more than just right now, because obviously we're dealing with the question of the election of a president, we're dealing with issues of fraud, We're dealing with issues whether we are a republic or a pure democracy and whether simple majority ought to settle everything. We talked about a lot of this last week, and I think we knew that it wasn't all over with then, and it certainly isn't over with now. And let me just mention one thing. I think there's been a coronation here in this country, and it's been done largely by the media with, of course, the enthusiastic cooperation of the the Biden candidacy and with him and his vice presidential candidate. But ever since a Saturday night, possibly even a day or so before, but Saturday night when they proclaimed that Biden had received 270 electoral votes, they coronated him as president-elect. What I think they need to remember here is that under the Constitution, nobody is ever called the president-elect until the Electoral College has elected him and those votes have been counted and pronounced and certified there at the the Congress. Here, here. The Electoral College College votes in December, and as we saw last week, this isn't a matter where they all get together somewhere in Washington, D.C., and cast their votes. They cast their votes in each individual state. They are tabulated, and then they are conveyed to D.C., and, of course, it used to be that might take a number of days as people traveled by horseback to get their vote results to D.C. Then, in January 6th, they would be opened, I believe it's the 6th, they would be opened by the vice president, in front of the assembled sessions of both houses of Congress, they'd open the ballots, they would count them there, and then make a proclamation. And, of course, nobody had a majority of the electoral vote. And there couldn't be any second ballot because, obviously, they had never gotten together in the first place. So nobody is assembled to do a second vote. Anyway, so if there was no majority out of the Electoral College, then the House would elect a president and the Senate would elect a vice president. And that would be out of the remaining contenders who had not been elected president, including probably the president's chief runner-up. And the idea that we would have such a party system as we have today, that this could result in 
two people of very opposite parties or persuasions serving as president and vice president didn't really seem to be on their minds at that time. And, of course, it became a serious problem in 1797 when John Adams was president and Thomas Jefferson was vice president and Adams and vice president and and Vice President Jefferson were at odds with each other. Adams was a moderate federalist. Jefferson was much more of a, I guess the best word would be a Jeffersonian. Technically, the party was called the Democratic-Republican. But anyway, Jefferson many times just seemed to be blocking the things that Adams tried to do. And having a president and vice president who are at odds just didn't work out very well. So in the early 1800s, we get the 12th Amendment, and then later the 20th and others, that now we have a president and vice president running on the same ticket. But at any rate, the point is the Electoral College elects the president. And to suddenly proclaim that he is the president-elect is simply a coronation, and I might call it not a coronation, but a coup, Van Jones, left-wing commentator on television, he said that what Donald Trump is trying to do right now is an illegal coup. No, (laughs) what he is trying to do is prevent an illegal coup. And the illegal coup has been going on between the Bidenites and the media, most of the media, that is. Anyway, so here's another interesting thing about this, and that's that way back last summer, Hillary Clinton said to Joe Biden, this was made very public, she just told him, you definitely should not concede until the last vote is counted. Well, if that advice goes for Biden, it ought to go for President Trump as well. And what is going on here right now in the contest is we want to make sure that every legal vote is counted. And we want to make equally sure that every illegal vote is not counted. And remember, there are two ways that you can be deprived of your right to vote. One way is if they don't let you vote. The other way is if they cancel out your vote with an illegal vote. Either way, that disenfranchises you and So regardless of how these challenges play out, it is of vital importance that we go through the counting process, the recounting process, the certification process, and if necessary, challenges in court or in legislatures to get these matters resolved. Because again, regardless of how it comes out in this election, we need to get some precedents established here to prevent this kind of a fiasco from taking place four years down the line. Anyway, all this is crucial. Well, what is your perception on it, Brian? I'm very grateful for the fact check that you're providing compared to the uh, fact check that uh, that seems to pop up all over social media because um, I'm with you. You know, the electors haven't voted, and yet we're supposed to pretend that, no, this is a settled matter, and no one in their right mind should be questioning it and yet uh, it, it's not a settled matter at this point. And, and there's, you know, there are discrepancies and, and recounts that need to take place as well. I was just listening to talk radio, and not everything on talk radio is worth repeating, but sometimes it is. But a fellow called in on 
Alabama Talk Radio. He said he had four friends in Georgia that went to vote in their small town precinct, and they were told they couldn't vote because they'd voted absentee two weeks earlier, which they had not. Ooh, yeah, that's not good. Anyway, if if I had had a chance to call in, I certainly would have been telling them, well, you need to call, you need to cast a provisional ballot, and this needs to be challenged. Also, I'd like to give out something here, and but but the point of the matter is, but most likely in their case, that got straightened out. But what if they hadn't come to vote? Then those absent, those illegal absentee votes would have counted, and nobody would have known the difference. How many were there cast for people that never bothered to vote? So those illegal absentee ballots got counted. And anyway, there is a line that people can call if you know or you know somebody else who knows of some fraud in this election, there is a hotline that you can call to report this. And that is 888-630-1776. Good last number there. And there's also a website that you can go to to report fraud in this election. And I think this applies regardless of where it is. And that is DJT, like Donald J. Trump, DJT45.co forward slash period dot again, fraud, DJT45.co forward slash dot fraud. Anyway, those are a couple of ways that if you know of fraud, that, or those places you can go to, have it reported and hopefully have it acted on. So I just want to clarify that first number that you gave, um, 888-630-1776. Is that correct? That's the number I've been given, yes. Okay. I will have these jotted down, and I'll make sure that we include them in the show notes. Um, Colonel, let's pause right there. Um, We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back just the other side of our commercial messages. Again, you're listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. There is a lot to talk about, and especially keeping it all within the boundaries of what exactly does the Constitution empower the government to do as well as require it to do. We'll be back right after this. If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc., 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492, Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation, Commission License Number DC83. Service may adversely affect an individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. 
If you've fallen behind in your credit card payments during the shutdown, you're probably feeling some added pressures. And even a brief history of late payments can lead to a big drop in your credit score. But you don't have to solve these problems alone. Trinity Debt Management can help. We'll work with your creditors, put a stop to late fees and other penalties, and make a plan that helps you get caught up. We'll also consolidate your bills into one easy-to-manage monthly payment and negotiate much lower interest rates. Not only will you find immediate relief, you'll save thousands. And don't worry, it's not a loan. It's a smart way to get back on track. All you have to do is give Trinity a quick call and we'll take care of the rest. Right now, no one really knows what the future will bring. But one thing is for sure. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Here's the number. Call 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. You've heard me talking about MyPillow for three years. Folks, it's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a MyPillow. You can do it too. 60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. And just like that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I'm grateful that I have uh, someone like you to turn to at times like this for a bit of perspective on what the rules of the game really are, because right now it seems like there are a lot of things being asserted as, well, you know, this is factual or this is reality that uh, really are, are flimsy as cotton candy. Flimsy as cotton candy. Well, as a cotton candy lover, that's certainly, I know what you mean by being flimsy. It just kind of melts in your mouth or before it gets to your mouth. But it seems flimsy, yes. But at the same time, I have to say this has been very carefully planned out in advance. And honestly, the way they've done this, I have to give them credit. It's brilliant. First of all, this whole advanced voting is something that has been planned out in advance. And I remember way back last spring, I wondered, well, if Biden is having some cognitive problems right now, how are they going to keep him from the public? Well, the coronavirus certainly gave them their excuse to keep him from the public. And I'm not saying the whole coronavirus thing is a conspiracy, but they have certainly learned to take advantage of it tied in with that and with Rahm Emanuel's famous statement, never let a crisis go to waste. And so popped into this, we see the crisis of George Floyd when George Floyd is killed by a, possibly by a police officer and, and this leads to riots all over the place. Well, we take advantage of this as a means of pressing for all kinds of social changes. Well, in the meantime, most law-abiding citizens are 
obediently sitting back in their homes with their masks on. And all of this is going on. And now it comes to the, the advanced voting idea. People can't go to the polls. That's going to be dangerous. People are going to get coronavirus if they go to the polls. So we've got to arrange mail-in voting, advanced voting, way in advance like this. And so all of that is planned out very carefully. And there's a real question, though, if we follow the Constitution and the law, whether any of that advanced voting is, is legal and constitutional. Now, Article 2 of the Constitution, the article that says that the electors are going to meet in their respective states and that each state will appoint in such manner as the legislature may direct a number of electors. But it goes on to say in the next paragraph that the Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. Now, the conduct of elections is basically left up to the states, but the Congress, according to Article 2, will set the time of choosing the electors, in other words, set a national election date. And Congress has done so. They have passed a statute saying that the day of the election is the, I believe it says the first Tuesday after the first Monday and of the year. And anyway, so Congress has fixed a day for the elections. Now, if a state is putting in weeks of advance voting before the day that Congress has fixed for the elections, does that comply with what Congress has said, that the election is going to take place on this day? It's one thing to have absentee ballots for those who have to be out of town or for those who maybe have to be poll watchers or something, but to have Congress fix the day of the election and then states just start having the election. People can either show up in person to vote or else they can vote by mail and so on way in advance. I think if this ever came to a court, a court could very possibly say that all of that advance voting is contrary to what the Constitution and the federal statute in this requires. But after all that is done, now, we see some states, like Florida. Now, the way Florida did this, you know, they allowed advanced voting because there's such pressure to do so because of the virus and so on. But they provided that the advance votes were going to be counted, and they'd be counted either in advance of or along with the votes that were cast on Election Day. And so by election night, we had a total out of Florida that included all the advance voting, absentee voting, and the in-person voting on election day all put together. But various other states didn't do that. Various other states provided that the absentee ballots would not be counted until after the votes on election day were counted. In fact, several states even provided that they don't even have to be submitted until several days afterward. That in several states, for example, you could postmark it on Election Day, and it could be received, well, the number, the number of days afterward varied from state to state, but up to several days afterward, and would still be, be counted. And anyway, some, some say that gives rise to the possibility that 
They can listen to everything, watch the election returns. They can see how far ahead President Trump is in the in-person voting on Tuesday. And then they know how many absentee ballots they have to put in to overcome his lead. It certainly gives that appearance of evil, and it could very well be the actual evil itself. That could very well be what is happening in a number of these states. Now, it gets even worse. For example, up in Pennsylvania, there was a challenge raised to this. And one thing I regret on this, normally, you know, I'm not an advocate of judicial activism, but I, I do think that if the Supreme Court had stepped in and weighed in on this before the elections, we could have cleared up a lot of problems. As it is right now, if the Supreme Court is going to act on this after the fact, they may have to invalidate a lot of ballots that people, some people at least, cast thinking that they were voting legally, and that is certainly not the ideal way of, of handling this. But what the court did in regard to Pennsylvania is the court told Pennsylvania that they had to separate the ballots received after Election Day from those ballots that had been received on or before Election Day. And I am told now that the Pennsylvania election officials have just defied that order and refused to follow it. They have commingled those ballots. Now, as they commingle the ballots, whether it's possible to uncommingle them or not, I don't know. But if they have violated that order, they could be in contempt of court. And if they're in contempt of court, they can be fined or jailed. Courts have that power to fine or jail for contempt of court. But it may be they've made such a mess of things that the Supreme Court will have only one option in some place like Pennsylvania. And that's to simply say that there is no way that we can make an accurate and true determination of who won this election. And so we are turning this over to the state legislature to choose the electors in a manner that seems right to them, which is exactly what the Constitution says that they can do. We read in Article 2, Section 1, once again, the second paragraph, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature may thereof direct a number of electors, and then it goes on to the numbers and so on. But the state legislature can appoint those legislators or can appoint those electors. Now, when they appoint the electors, of course, they've already said the way they're going to do it is they have the election and will appoint the electors that the plurality of voters have chosen. In other words, the electors pledged to that candidate. However, right now, even without a court order, the Pennsylvania legislature could step in and say, this has been such a fiasco, such a mess, we can't determine what the will of the voters is, so we've got to take other action. Okay, we'll pick up on that. Just the other side of these commercial messages, this is Constitution Classroom. We'll be right back. We 
are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, you were mentioning just before we went to break that uh, when controversies arise, and I assume the founding generation was wise enough to understand, you're dealing with human beings. There will be mistakes. There may be other forms of controversy or intrigue that will arise, that there are different roles that can be played uh, by the states and their legislatures as well. And I'd love to hear more about uh, the role that they could play in helping to adjudicate disputes of, uh, you know, of election uh, questions that arise. And we need to look at that. And yes, the founding fathers did know that people being what they are, problems could arise. Although I think they felt that there was probably a level of integrity among people in those days, because we did believe in such a thing as absolute truth that you may not see to the same extent today. But even without a court order, if the legislature were to say, we cannot determine what the will of the people is from this election, So we are simply going to appoint a slate of electors. The Pennsylvania legislature can do that. And again, we look to what Article 2 says, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, and that makes it appear that the legislature can do this without any interference from the governor. In other words, the governor has no veto power over this. And so if the legislature and both houses of the Pennsylvania legislature are Republican, the governor is Democrat, but if both houses of the legislature were to say, we're going to throw out the election, at least we're not going to use it as a valid indicator as to what the will of the people is for this election, and so we are going to appoint a slate of electors, the Pennsylvania legislature can do exactly that. If they did, that would reduce Biden's margin of electors from 290 to 270, which is one more than he needs to be elected. So there'd have to be something else happen out of somewhere like Arizona or Georgia before that might change the outcome. But at any rate, that is something they could do. And a court, if this went to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court could order the Georgia or the well, any, any state legislature, but Pennsylvania in particular, to do this. But they wouldn't need a court order to do it. They can do it on their own. The Constitution specifically authorizes that. Very interesting. And and there are time frames in which this is all supposed to happen, because I, I'm sure that they also foresaw that uh, there might be those who would be tempted to um, oh, I don't know, game the system and try to bog it down in just endless litigation and questions. Well, we want to raise more questions. And, you know, it, it seems like there. it's not like a blank check was given to, you know, you can question this as much as possible. Um, what, what are the time frames that we're looking at in which the, these things need to be settled in order for thing, life to move forward? Well, the Electoral College is to meet, and by that when they say meet, it means that they will meet in each of the 50 states and on the same day. And that's so that each state is not influenced by what another state decided to do. But in each state, they will meet. They, that is in December, approximately the 10th. I don't have the exact date before me here. They will then cast their electoral votes. Those electoral votes then will be transferred to the Congress of the United States, and on, I believe it's the 6th of January, the 
vice president of the United States who presides over the Senate will, in an assembly of, of both the House and the Senate together, he will open the Electoral College ballots and they will be counted in their presence and certified. Anyway, what this really means is that the president, if he is challenging what the media have declared to be the outcome of this election, he has a relatively short time in which to act. And notice how all of this is being so carefully orchestrated that the media there last Saturday night in an elaborate ceremony declared Biden to be the winner, declared him to be the president-elect, which he most definitely is not. He may be the winner. We don't know yet, but he definitely is not the president-elect, will not be until the Electoral College moves. But in the meantime, they're portraying it as though if President Trump is challenging this, he is simply a sore loser. He is just raising bogus claims. In fact, repeatedly, you're hearing one media after another saying the president is alleging this without proof. Well, here's the problem the president has right now. All of this is just over a week ago. It's happened just over a week ago. And yet he needs to come up with positive proof of fraud, and he needs to do it quickly. And it is it isn't coming on him to prove the fraud. But it is also very important for all of us, regardless of how we voted in this election, that he do so, because we want to ferret out fraud wherever it is. Not only that, but we want to be sure that this kind of thing is not going to happen in the future, and we want to take some steps to make sure that it doesn't happen in the future. But some of the types of fraud that we're seeing, I mentioned that about absentee ballots for when casting an absentee ballot for somebody that is not absentee voting, and in a couple of cases in Georgia there, as we've seen, the actual voter came in to vote. We've seen instances of people voting who we know to have already died, and if they hadn't died, they'd be like 116 years old and so on. We have seen ballots found in a ditch. In other words, these could be Trump ballots that people had, had disposed of rather than counting. We have had an affidavit from one election poll worker who said that she saw people with their their backs turned and basically forming a wall so that she couldn't see what was going on exactly, but they were marking ballots and passing them on into the election officials. There are so many things like this. There are cases of people bringing in several thousand ballots that all were marked for Biden and other cases of inspectors and poll watchers who, contrary to law, have not been allowed to watch the counting of the ballots or even watch the casting of the ballots. There are so many things like this that President Trump is going to have to prove. But we should all be praying that he and his attorneys and his staff will be able to prove these things if they are true. Because the integrity of the election, regardless of what side we're on, is something that we should all be very, very concerned about. Agreed. No, I, I think uh, uh, the people who have taken the, eh, I don't really care attitude 
Um, maybe they just didn't have a candidate that, that resonated with them strongly enough. But um, I, I, the bigger picture that I see, Colonel, is uh, we were given a system which, if the rules are followed, would allow us to, to maintain faith that even if our guy didn't win this time around, at least we would have a fair shake of you know putting forth a better candidate next time. And, and the process itself would remain trustworthy. If we did, even if we didn't get the outcome we wanted in a particular, you know, election, I see that vanishing. Though, I mean, I, I my my own trust in the system is is already pretty low, but stuff like this, to me, doesn't uh, doesn't seem to inspire a lot of confidence that that we can we can trust the political system to operate as it was intended. It seems like it's become a plaything. And trust in the system should be low. I mean, we should distrust our government. That is just the nature of man. Jefferson once said, let no more be said of confidence in man, but bind him down with the chains of the Constitution. Because of human nature, that's why we have a Constitution, to bind down the sinful nature of man and not eliminate, but at least minimize the possibility that people in government are going to be acting in sinful ways. So yes, that is of absolute importance. I'm also concerned at uh, how uh, the the concept of a free press, which should be giving us enough facts that we can make our own informed decisions, uh, the press seems to have have lost all pretense of impartiality, and now is is acting more as uh, a narrative manager of what particular storyline we're supposed to stick to, and you know to to it prompt us to shame those who won't follow that storyline. You're absolutely correct on that, and as critical as I am of the press, as much as they irritate me from time to time, I certainly want a free press, and I'm certainly glad that whenever you have somebody in government who is acting corruptly or acting dictatorially, that there are some hungry journalists out there looking for a scoop and ready to report what he did, That, that that's just good for honesty for all of us, but that has to assume that we've got a media that believes in truth and is looking for honesty. When we have a media today that doesn't really believe there is such a thing as objective truth, how can we trust them? Well said. On that note, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back after these messages. have health goals but let's face it you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better in fact have you thought of this how many different servings of fruit have you eaten today how many servings of vegetables and sorry dad french fries and ketchup don't count the experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day that's where balance of nature comes in With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. 
or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA. Do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy points and availability vary by state. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about what I guess a lot of people are talking about, albeit from a slightly different vantage point. We're talking about the recent election of just over a week ago and some of the questions that remain. And um, Colonel, I understand that uh, the state of Georgia actually is in kind of a unique position as as things start to shake out. Tell me, what what is the position that they're in? Well, let's talk about Georgia in just a moment. But the first thing I want to say, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people who found President Trump uh, irritating in some ways. You know, the tweets and the the animosity toward the press and so on. But I have to say, first of all, the, the press never really gave him a chance to act as a president. And so he was in a constant battle, but that wasn't entirely of his own making. But as far as some of his mannerisms and tweets and so on, I can only say to listeners on that, get over it. Which is more important, that he sends out some obnoxious tweets or that he appoints pro-life, conservative, constitutionalist justices to the Supreme Court and judges to our other courts? Which is more important, that he builds our military or that he might behave in an obnoxious manner sometimes? But I just say the important thing here is not whether you like him personally. The important thing is the direction he is taking the country versus the direction that Biden and his people would take this country. And when you look at it that way, as I see it, there really is no no choice. But as I say, Georgia is in a special 
circumstance right now. Not only is the presidential election very close there, and a recall or recount has been triggered in Georgia. Some of the things that can be done here, by the way, you know, you can have a recount of the election. And in some states, the rules for recount will vary differently from others. If the election is close enough, then there's an automatic recount that the state provides and pays for. And if it is not that close, then the side that is demanding the recount may have to pay for the recount. It may be worth it in a number of states, but Georgia is one of the states where a recount is taking place. And then, of course, as we mentioned before, legislatures can step in, step in. Also, the courts can step in. And if the Supreme Court of the United States were to determine that election procedures were not followed properly and therefore the results are not reliable, they could fashion an equitable relief of whatever would be their choosing. And who knows what that might be. It might be instructing a new election, although that would mean holding over the present administration beyond the 20th of January. I think it's unlikely that they would do that, but it could be possible. Or they might just direct the legislatures of the various states that are at odds here to select electors. They may say that the Electoral College is unable to reach a result, in which case it would have to go to the House of Representatives to choose a president. And there, each state would would cast one vote as the majority of its congressmen would like it to be cast. There's a couple states like Minnesota where the Congressional delegation is divided evenly, four to four, and they would probably just have to vote present in a situation like that. But it, even though we have a slight Democrat majority in the House, if we have one vote for each state, there would be probably more states voting Republican than voting Democrat. But anyway, those are some things that could be done. But the other thing about Georgia, too, is that I believe we now have all of the senatorial elections called with the exception of those in Georgia. And we have 50 that are called for the Republicans. I understand that they have now called North Carolina in favor of the Republican Tillis. And I believe they have called the Alaska election in favor of the Republican Sullivan, which means you have 50 Republicans. You have 46 Democrats plus two independents that caucus with the Democrats. So in effect, 48 Democrats. Where are the other two? Georgia. You had one that Senator Perdue, who was, his term expired, so he is up for re-election. And then you had, I believe her name was Leffler, who was appointed to fill an unexpired term, and so she's up for re-election as well. Now, Leffler clearly did not get a plurality or a majority, either one. And so in early January, there's going to be a runoff for her election. Now, in most states, for the senatorial elections and most other elections, it's whoever wins a runoff or whoever wins a plurality, not a majority. But in Georgia, for the senatorial elections at least, you have to win a majority. Senator Perdue earlier was running a majority, but as of latest count, he has a pretty substantial plurality over his opponent, but 
just under a majority, something like the last I saw, 49.7%. If that holds up, there's going to be a runoff in January for his election as well. So we have two runoff elections in Georgia that are going to be in early January. Now, as I say, it's 40, it's, it's 50 Republicans, 46 Democrats, plus two independents and caucus with them, 48. If the Democrats were to carry both of these Georgia senatorial elections, then it would be 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, and the deciding vote would be cast by the vice president, who might be Kamala Harris, in which case the Democrats would have the majority of the committee assign- or committee chairmanships and so on. They would have those in both the Senate and the House, and really, in effect, control of both houses as well as the presidency. So to prevent the radical agenda from getting through, it is vitally important that Republicans carry at least one of those two Senate runoff races in Georgia and preferably carry both of them, bearing in mind that several of the Republicans don't always vote as Republicans. For example, Murkowski in Alaska, Collins in Maine, sometimes Romney in Utah, and a few others occasionally too. But and on the other hand, there are some there are several Democrats who don't always vote with the Democrat Party either. There is a little speculation that Senator Manchin of West Virginia may who is a moderate Democrat, there is a possibility that he might switch parties and become a Republican. Something that could happen, I don't know. But at any rate, it is vitally important that Republicans control the Senate because that would stop the radical Democrat agenda. Now, where Obama, or not Obama, I'm sorry, where Biden stands on that is a little hard to say. There are some who think that he would say and do anything to get elected. There are some who think that he just bought in totally with the Green Deal and with all of the rest of the radical, the AOC squad and everything they want to do. There are some who think that he's controlled by them. But if the Senate were in Republican hands, he would have to maybe take a more moderate position on some things in order to get his agenda through Congress, which might cause problems for him with the radical wing of the Democrat Party, but and even cause problems between him and Kamala Harris. But at any rate, there are plenty of websites that you can go to to contribute to the Republican candidates there in the Georgia Senate races. And again, that is of vital importance to stop this radical agenda. Now, let's just suppose that Biden is ultimately victorious in this. I'm not going to say that he won because I don't think we can ever say that he won the election, but that he that he may possibly prevail in all the challenges. Let's say that he becomes president. Well, Lord may be telling us something there. He may be telling us that, you know, you have made tremendous progress in the last four years, and under President Trump's leadership, you have remade the federal courts, you have rebuilt our nation's defenses, you have dismantled many of the 
radical environmental regulations and other anti-business regulations. You brought about tax relief. So many things that have been done that maybe it's time to take a breather and let the rest of the country catch up with us for the next four years and be in a position to run again in, in four years with and think about who the candidates might be at that time. It could be Trump, but there are other possibilities too, like Vice President Pence, like Senator Cotton of Arkansas, and a number of other good possibilities. Governor Noem of South Carolina might be a good possibility for one of the seats too. But anyway, trust the Lord, he's in control, but work, contribute, pray, do what you can.